History, lecture 99, Rabbi Bleiweiss. Uh Yeah, Isaiah, I just pointed this out, but it's worth, worth noting. By the time we get to the 19th century, and certainly in, into the modern era, the, it gets, there's so many things happening simultaneously that rather than taking a purely chronological sequence, which I've never pretended to do in this class, but now especially I'm following units and themes through more or less with some, so, uh, you'll see, you'll see how it uh, unpacks, but um, just because I may have discussed something two days ago doesn't mean that it happened um, two centuries prior. Um, the, the, the thread I want to pick up and examine again is what happened now in the subsequent generations of Hasidus, and specifically, what's sometimes referred to as the counter-revolution within Hasidus. If Hasidus itself was self-consciously a massive revolution, uh, nobody argues on that. I mean, they themselves were the first to tell you, yeah, yeah, we wanted to change the world, um, and that was positive, at least from their perspective, certainly not necessarily the misnagdim. Um, so it, we're going to see now that wound up shaking up the establishment. Um, what happens with the revolution? Think about revolutions. We've had a lot in the last couple centuries. If you're a student of history, um, who does revolution generally excite and appeal to? Poor people, but I, I think a different youth. sector, youth. Yeah, that's what I think of. Because, you know, youth are filled with all kinds of potential idealism and, and energy, and they want to, they, they're, they're, they understand that the older generation are, uh, are somehow outmoded, and, and they have a new way of doing things that is better, we can outdo you. They don't always realize that sometimes uh, the, the old generation has a little bit of wisdom, uh, a variation on the Mark Twain uh, quote, uh, quotation from Mark Twain that when I was 14 years old, my father was so ignorant, I was embarrassed to have the old man around, but when I turned 21, I couldn't believe how wise he'd become and just, he, he grew, he, he, he became just in just seven years. Um, and, and one sees this true, certainly um, the older people tend to be more the establishment. It's not a coincidence that Democrats in America tend to get the youth vote more than the Republicans who get the old old timers. Right, and the minorities too. Um, youth are open to change. There's more dynamism. Sometimes one finds greater optimism. Dreamers are present within revolution. Now, then what happens when a revolution succeeds, usually they don't, but when they do succeed, they gradually become the establishment. And they actually fall back to many of the ways that they said or they were dedicated <coughs> to overthrowing, often following the same patterns. So. Hasidus, if you think about it, was revolutionary. Today, in many ways, it's, it's so mainstream. It's the establishment of much of the way the world works in Torah, certainly in terms of fighting assimilation. Uh, Hasidic groups are at the, at, at the forefront of the struggle. Um, they will have, a, a, what some would say, a disproportionate influence on Minag Yisrael in general. Uh, practices that would have been shunned by Misnagdim a couple centuries ago today are incorporated, and we talked about this already uh, right after our class going into Rav Greenwald's son's upshur, uh, upshur, uh, cutting his hair at three years old. That was a strictly Hasidic practice until about a half a century ago, and suddenly it took over. Uh, but not just there. We do, we do a lot of things because the Hasidim have become the establishment. It's hard to imagine they're so establishment just how they were exactly at initially. Um, Firebrands, upstarts, uh, not, not, not our image of them today. Um, to a certain degree, Chabad would tell you that they retained this upstart spirit. Breslov might also fit that as well. Um, now, 
Another byproduct of revolutions is that they generally, more so than the old way, inspire a meritocracy. Meaning there's more of an opportunity for the genuinely smart, talented uh, people with raw uh, abilities to be able to rise to the top because there's enough chaos and instability that it leaves a, at least a chasm open and people can actually naturally rise. The more establishment you become, the more uh, traditional, people doing favors, nepotism, people, uh, it's harder for the uh, best and the brightest to rise to the top. Um, but one finds that within Hasidus is that uh, names will emerge, and I'm going to introduce you to some, some, some very exciting, interesting names who would not necessarily have risen up in the old order, but because of, the, um, because of what Hasidus did in laying the ground, it, it, gave, them, it gave room and opportunity for these to, uh, these to, to thrive. Um, Hasidus... Hasidus inspires Jews all over, and uh, even reaching children of misnagdim, often the best and the brightest. So I'll give you two examples. Uh, one referred to as the Chosen Milublin is Rav Yaakov Yitzchak of Lublin. I mean, on some level, everybody was a misnagdim before becoming a chassid. If misnagdim just means part of the old order, everybody originally started out that way. But now, a, couple, a generation or two into into the uh, <clears throat> into the into the works, you're having people who are from the dyed in the wool, you know, old order misnagdim who are now joining the uh, the revolution. The Chosov Lublin would lead Polish Hasidus into the 19th century. This is, these are still days where there's such a it's even possible to think of somebody who's generally the leader of what's increasingly a divided and disparate. Um, movement of Hasidists divided into so many monarchies and increasing dynasties. Um, the uh, are there new ones made every day, like every year? It seems like it. Like That's my impression. Ones created in the past fifty years, but dynasties, right? Yeah, lots of new dynasties. We we we. I, I think I mentioned this too, and we learned it. Uh, I was with six fifteen. Did you hear that? No, I didn't. Thank you. Six fifteen. Won't help me. Okay, that actually well. I guess my guys just, they, please have my guys meet at 8 no matter what. If you, that could be announced at 6.15. It would be announced as they turn this time. So I need to doubt it on my own. Great. Okay, thank sorry. you very much. No, no, it's good to know. I mean, the spark was because we do want the guys to dress up in costumes. We don't want to defend Not for that. Yeah. It's a good, good spark. Wait, okay, let me, let me continue so we don't lose our thread. So, Jose, um, <coughs> as, uh, as part of the a reaction to the reaction, among other things, took the criticism against uh, Hasidus that they had sidelined Torah learning. He took that to heart, and he is a champion of um, increasing Torah study, the old style. No, nothing contradictory about being Hasidish in, in, uh, in, in all the priorities and values taught by the uh, Baal Shem Tov and the, Chos, uh, the, and the Magid and, and the others, but at the same time being Talmud Chachamim in the classic mold. Um, he also was interested in expanding Hasidus in the style of the Magid, of Mezheritz. He wanted, he, wanted, he wanted to grow, and under the Chose of Lublin, uh, th there will be an increased dynamism of Hasidus. His, um, he's named, he's called the Chose because of his immense intuition. Uh, it's kind of borderline, you have to be careful, he wasn't the prophet, we don't have prophecy, but he seemed to know stuff. Um, when he died, 
which was July 15, 1815, he predicted that the Russians would lose control over Poland in a hundred years. That was what he predicted in 1815. On, well, it wasn't precise. He predicted that on July 15th. It took till July 20th on 1915. Uh, and that didn't line up even, even by the real calendar, the Hebrew calendar. Um, the Austrians on that date conquered Lublin, his own, his own hometown. And um, that was even noted that the Jose had predicted that 100 years earlier in the, in the non-Jewish Polish newspapers. The uh, Jose had a Talmud Mulfat. Keep a track of these personalities because they're going to feature prominently in a story, a fantastic story that I'm about to tell. Um, his primary student was Rav Yaakov Yitzchak Rabinovich of Psishka who was not referred to by his full name. He's more popularly known through history as the Yid HaKadosh, the Holy Jew, the Yid HaKadosh. And he broke away. He was, he was his top, the Talmud Mulak of the Chose, but he was disillusioned with normative standard Hasidus, and he broke away, and he, caused, he, broke, he founded his own breakaway movement, which was a radical departure. It was based in Sishcha. Uh, and he was uncompromising. He, was, uh, he refused to honor leaders that he felt were not worthy. That was one of the controversies, not only among the Misnagdim, but even between the Hasidim themselves, that some of the Rebbes may not have been such to necessarily qualify for the job, or necessarily Tzadikim. Sometimes the charisma displaced both, the, uh, both of these earlier prerequisites, and he wouldn't stand, he wouldn't honor them. He was critical in other areas, he perceived people performing halacha by rote, meaning just going through the motions ritualistically without actually doing the halacha carefully with kavana. Um, he had nothing to do with ame ha'aretz. If you hadn't learned, don't bother approaching the yedekadosh. He had no time for you. He was somebody of extremely high sta personal standards. He rejected any kind of physical luxury. And the only people he would countenance were people who um, he felt were scrupulously honest. Uh, and he's controversial, and he, he alienates a number, of, a number of people. And he dies suddenly at, relative, at a relatively young age, um, when he, in, in, um, in 1813. And now you have this breakaway movement within Hasidus, what, we, what I've been referring to as the revolution within the revolution, that's now led by his successor, Rav Simcha Bonham of Sishka, who is perceived in general as more moderate. And um, he would do much to, to calm the tensions that were growing now between the traditional Hasidim and his, new, and his own group. Uh, he understood that not everybody could hold to the standards of the Yid HaKadosh. The Yid HaKadosh was very exacting, and most people couldn't meet his specifications. The, one of the famous oft-quoted uh, bits of wisdom from Rav Simcha Bunim is uh, he encourages Jews, has anybody ever heard this, to keep two pockets, two notes in separate pockets. That's a good Musa trick. He would do this himself. When he felt discouraged, he pulled out, he knew which pocket had which note, he pulled out the note that said, Bishvili Nivraha Ulam. It's quoting the Mishnah in Sanhedrin. Uh, the world was created for me, not at all 
be interpreted as a sign of arrogance, but that I have something distinct to offer the world that nobody else can, given what, how Kaddish Baruch created me individually, and therefore I have to rise to my, uh, I have to rise to the occasion. Oh, you're so good. How do you know this, Ilan? Great. Okay, that's 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 from Simcha Bonam of Pesichah, who's part of this counter revolution. Whenever he felt high and mighty, a little too arrogant, he pulled out the other note, which reminded him, Afar ve'efar anochi, I am dirt and ash. Quoting whom? <coughs> Who says this originally in history? Ooh, wow. You don't know this? Afar ve'efar anochi. Fellows. All reasonable candidates, but really Avram Avinu. Afar ve'efar anochi. Um... When Rav Simcha Bunim suddenly died, a new figure arose who maybe you could see as a reflection of the former two, the Yedekadosh, if you drew a state line from the Yedekadosh and Rav Simcha Bunim, you might get to him, but he cuts his own original figure as you're about to hear. His full name is Rav Menachem Mendel Morgenstern. His dates are 1787 to, eight, excuse me, 1787 to 1859. And he was from the tiny village of Kotsk that would forever bear his name as its legacy. He's the Kotsker Rebbe, who, like many of our heroes in today's stories, originally came from a, a strongly misnagdish family, meaning they were anti-Hasidim, uh, and he became close. He was inspired by Hasidic ideas, but then eventually became enamored with the teachings of the Yiddikadosh, and he would continue to take this revolution to the next level as the new Rebbe. And like his grand Rebbe, the Yiddikadosh, he mocked, he openly, flagrantly mocked other Hasidish Rebbe's. Um, they, in response, some of them stopped short of putting him into cherem, but they were not friends. Uh, he criticized what he felt were cultish practice, practices among certain Hasidim. He was known, he's called a saraf, which is the burning angel. And he was known for his sharpness. He, he said about his colleagues, he says, we don't need miracle workers, we need human beings, was his brand of Hasidus. Very real, very honest, very, uh, he didn't like any of the fluff. He didn't like the shallow aspects that he perceived. Uh, his intellect, in fact, was so piercing and he couldn't take on the Kutzker Rebbe. He was unequaled on a certain level. And not only was he smart, but his standards of integrity. He, was, he, was, uh, he had the uh, most refined midos. He was so uncompromising in all of his ways that even his closest friends and disciples feared him. It was that kind of a personality. Um, he despised any kind of material pursuits. Why not water? He would say. He, uh, he, dis he despised people's pettiness, their shallowness. He was a sometimes, called, I think I, he's characterized sometimes in the most positive sense of the word, an angry person in the sense, in the most positive sense, in that he sought perfection in the, of the spirit in an otherwise imperfect world. He said, because we can. We're capable of doing so, and so you have to shoot for it. And people who did not, he had, had little patience for them. 
There is so much that the Cutster said that's quotable. I struggled in paring down my own personal favorites, and they are as follows, but each one of them, trust me, is gold. And we could potentially spend, um, oh, and that's not excessive? Um, and each one of them, <laughs> we're, in the cuts, we're in the Cutster territory today, so be careful. The, um, so each one of these is gold and worthy of a longer discussion than we're gonna give it, but uh, take notes. The Kutzker says this one I quote all the time. All, all that is thought should not be said. And all that is said should not be written. And all that's written should not be published. And all that's published should not be read. And all that is read should not be memorized. Uh, that's just so true. And people are so eager to get their names out there and the fame and the fortune and whatever else. Uh, there are there are many idiots today. One can one can paraphrase this and say many idiots up, up in the blogosphere. Blogosphere? No, isn't that what it's called? Yeah, it's deep. Blogosphere. Blogosphere. Uh, contemporary uh, still, or that even that's like a dated phrase. So that's that keeps me. Uh, I'm, I'm up to times if I use that one still. Fine, thank you, thank you. Um, he uh, he himself wrote many many manuscripts with his brilliant mind, and before he died, he burned all of them. He felt they weren't worthy of publication. <coughs> the Kutzker teaches that one who believes all agadita, all agados, uh, that some of us like to learn a lot, um, literally, if he takes them literally, he's a fool. And one who says they couldn't have happened is an Apicorus. I heard that from Midrashim. Yeah, it's a variation of what the Maharal said. Sometimes their two statements are confused, but that's the Kutzker's statement on the subject. Um, he asks, where is Hashem found? And he answered, in a place where he's allowed in. Just think about that. Hashem's, Hashem's accessible. And right there, you just have to reach out to dive into him. The problem is, is most of us don't, don't even bother. We don't let a Kaddish Baruch in. He said, rather than Tchiyas Amesim, Rather than reviving the dead, you know what I prefer? I prefer to revive the living. Most people are just walking dead. They're zombies. He didn't say that. I'm paraphrasing. Um, elsewhere, he addresses the subject of depression. He says, they call it depression. I call it precus ol. Precus ol taking off the yoke of the heavens. Meaning a person, if you ever noticed, who's depressed, and I don't think he's referring to clinical depression or chemical depre chemically based depression, but depression, you know, like in the modern spirit of things, people getting obsessively uh, self-focused, narcissistic, that kind of depression that is uh, rampant out there and maybe in here too. Um, the, uh, he said that kind of depression is an excuse, gives, a person gives themselves license for self-absorption and ultimately throws off the heavenly yoke as, as an excuse to run away from a kind of bar home. That's how he understood a lot of depression. <clears throat> Intentional humility, he points out, is no longer humility. Uh, I have, yeah, okay. Um, he, he teaches that when a Jew says, moda ani lefanecha, he should think a minute, who's ani and who's lefanecha? Don't just throw the words out of your mouth. Contemplate what you're saying. 
He also points out that in Torah, in the Torah world, there are no genuine fast days. Ooh, how appropriate before tomorrow. He I said there really so. are no fast days. Wonderful. He said on, y- <laughs> on Yom Kippur, he says there's so much simcha of the neshama. He points out who can eat. We're too, we're too uh, embossed in simcha to even think about something as minor as food. And he points out on Tisha B'Av, who has the stomach to eat? And by extension, if we're really absorbed with the themes of the day, and Tiny Sester tomorrow is no exception, then uh, it, it shouldn't theoretically even be experienced as a hardship, as a fast, but rather just a natural, I'm paraphrasing, a natural extension of the day. Um, here's another one. I, I, these are just words to live by, so many of them. He says, a person, when he's become old, imitates himself. Maybe this one will mean more to you as you age. But it's, he says, mo- most of us at some point become complacent, self-satisfied, and we, um, we're content to live out the rest of our days imitating ourselves, imitating younger versions of ourselves. And if you notice it, it's really true. My, my grandfather used to point this out as an extension. He says, people think that when you get old, you lose it. He said, more commonly, as you age, um, you become more so. So if you were stubborn, now you become really stubborn or impatient or angry or whatever the various midos are. But the Kuster is saying something even deeper. He's saying, he's saying we reach a certain level in life where we say, this is what I'm cut out for, and then we stagnate. And that's true of overwhelming majority of humanity, and it couldn't be more against the spirit of Torah. Or Torah means every year, every day in a life, it should, should mean growth. That means that from 50 to 55, you should discover the 55-year-old a different human being than he was when he was 50. Now, the Kutzker, for his own part, Dafka intentionally avoided attracting a large Hasidus. For him, numbers was not the intellectually honest way to go. I think that's true in general in life. It's not about quantity, it's quality. He said he wanted 300 high-quality men to join his Hasidus. At the end of his life, he said he never found the 300. He met a lot of men, he didn't find the 300. Um, and Kutz became a magnet, especially for children of Misnagdim, who were, who were, let's say, sympathetic to some of the messages of this movement, wary of its excesses, and drawn to a spirituality that they sometimes didn't find in the old system. Uh, one example of that, one of, one of the great students of the Kutzker tradition is Rav Tzadok HaKohen, who we're going to meet, who was a profound thinker and, uh, and would stimulate other later profound thinkers, uh, responsible for what a lot of people call original uh, modern Jewish thought. Um, it's Rav Tzadok HaKohen, for example, whose ideas I emphasized here in talking about his interpretation of the Gemara when they contained the Sahara for idolatry. Remember how I gave that a lot of emphasis? The Gunnatins and Hedrin Yuma, but how we, the idea that we lost prophecy and we lost um, uh, revealed miracles and, and we, we lost our ability to pray with the same intensity, um, that, that those ideas were all developed around Tzadok Cohen, who is, um, who is a disciple of the Kutzker tradition. Um, now, yesterday at the end of class, we met two great figures, contemporaries of these, Rabbi Akiva Eger and his son in law, Rav. Um, Rav, Rav Moshe Sofer, the Hasim Sofer, and we saw how each of them represented a different, a different, I mean, a related sphere of Misnagdish. They were both very, very strongly anti-Hasidus. 
Rabbi Kiva Eger had a very talented son, as we're, we're going to meet shortly, and a very talented grandson. And the Kutzker saw the grandson, his name was Rablebala, and he said, that one's mine. And that's a story I'm going to get to shortly. And he'll send him a special invitation. You get a personalized invitation from the Kutzker Rebbe, what are you going to do? It's like being invited by an Ivy League school. Um, now, Kutsk became renowned for being exclusive. Not everybody was accepted uh, for its spiritual level, levels, its, its, its intellectual rigor. It did indeed attract some of the highest caliber students of the day who were full of youthful enthusiasm, idealism. That was the nature of Kutsk. And I'm coming back to Kutsk, but just briefly about the Kutsk Rebbe himself. Um, I mentioned that he was born in 1787. Um, 20 years before he died, something happened on a little Shabbos that nobody quite know, that nobody quite understands. But whatever it was, from that point on, the Kutzker Rebbe became a recluse and wouldn't take visitors. With one exception, his brother-in-law, uh, who's another major figure, the Chidushe Harim, the, uh, the original um, Admor of the of, of Hasidic Gur or Ger Hasidim. They married sisters. The Kutzker Rebbe was the brother-in-law uh, of, of the Chidusharim. The Chidusharim's grandson is Tzfas Emes. These are names that, that register with you. Um, he actually had a number of, of prominent students that will spawn their own dynasties within Hasidis that are sometimes referred to as Litvish Hasidim. Because much of the spirit, certainly the, the stellar level of learning Taira, uh, would be found in, in, in Kutzker circles. Um, to, to a large degree, I mean, these gedolim would be, would, be, would be embraced and celebrated within any normative Jewish uh, base medrash. Uh, they, they would be related. I'll throw out a few of the names. Ger Hasidim, of course, uh, comes to mind, but not just. There's Alexander, Redziner Hasidim, Varka. Uh, they represent some of the greatest, most prominent Torah to emerge from Poland in this era, and we will certainly meet some of the figures. And since I mentioned him, a few words about um, the Chidushe Harim. That's Chidushe Harim. The names get sometimes merged together. Um, his full name is Rav Yitzchak Meir Alter, sometimes referred to as Rav Itchemer. He was the founder of, of Hasid Gur. He has, this, he has this absolutely sharp, incisive observation about the times that we're talking about and this whole struggle between Misnagdim and Hasidim. He said, and this is, he's commenting already as he's, he's firmly entrenched within the Hasidic movement. He said like this, true Misnagdim don't deserve to be punished. And obviously he's implying punished because they fight the Hasidim. He said they don't deserve to be punished because they fight Hasidis L'Shem Shemayim. They're doing it for the best of reasons. Therefore, when Hashem punishes them, He punishes them with a punishment that's not really a punishment. He makes their sons become chassidim. It's devious, and it's also autobiographical. It's a great line. He came from strong Misnad Distak. He descends, he can trace his descendants back to the Maharam of Rutenberg, or the Mayor of Rutenberg, remember who was held prisoner in the castle for seven years before he died. The Russia's Rebbe um, was his ancestor, as was Rashi. Most of his 14 children 
died in their infancy, so he knew, he knew what suffering was. Uh, but one of his sons, one of his sons, survived enough, long enough to give birth to a grandson who would go on to write the Sfas Emes, and we'll hear about him not today, but later on, as we see the Sfas Emes being one of the stellar figures of Hasidism in the end of the 19th century. Um, I mentioned Rabbi Kiva Eger. Uh, his son, Rav Shlomo Eger, was not just a misnagid like his father. He actually went a step further. He was actively, get this, Moser Hasidim and Hasidish Rebis to the authorities. Moser means he would tell them and they would arrest the, the, the Rebbe. And he did it all the Shem Shemayim. He felt they were destroying Torah. He actually moved to Warsaw because Warsaw became a hotbed of, of Hasidic activity and he, he went there to pursue them, to try to chase them and get, and get rid of them, destroy them at the center. Um, he was also a, 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 a brilliant Talmud Chacham. Um, in the back of our Gemara, you can find his commentary, the Gilion HaMarsha, not to be confused with the Marsha much earlier, but it's called the Gilion HaMarsha, that's Rav Shlomo Eger. In the back of the Gemara, um, he also has a commentary on the daf, on the daf of Yoridea in the Shulchan Aruch. He also, interesting, multi-talented individual, he was an astute businessman and became one of the wealthiest of all, in all of Poland. So go figure, you could have potential wealth and Torah in one place. Um, he made a shidduch for his 20-year-old son with another Polish Talmud Chacham, who was the second wealthiest Jewish man in all of Poland. And he was also a misnagid. And the, old, the other man was such a misnagid when they made Tanaim, what are, what are pre preconditions to the marriage, the Tanaim included that the Hasim, and they knew what the Hasidim were up to. They knew that the Hasidim went after their kids. And so they made a, a condition that the young groom was not allowed to visit a Rebbe's tish. The tish was the table where they attracted so many, and it wasn't just the food and the drink, but the whole charisma of the Rebbe and the whole dynamic uh, atmosphere, um, and, and also that the, 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 the Hasim was the, the young groom would have no involvement with Hasidim. That was actually the, he had to sign that uh, before he could get married. And the Hasan, again, the grandson of Rabbi Kiva Eger, is, is, his full name is Rabbi Yehuda Aryeh Eger. He's referred to as Rav Labela. He himself was quite a figure to, to behold. He was, at a young age in Ilui, he was a prodigy in Tyra. He was handsome, tall, blonde, did not quite fit the image of, of, uh, of, of, our, of, of, of the usual Tamil Chacham. He also was born not with one, but two silver spoons. He was a wealthy kid growing up. At the age of five, he wore a fur coat. You have to realize, now in Poland, anybody been to Poland in the wintertime? Pretty cold up there, okay? They didn't have fur coats. That was reserved for royalty, but he had one. And um, he actually was exposed in Warsaw to the to the to the Arim, <coughs> the brother-in-law of the Kotzker. But when he got married, they moved to Lublin. And Rev Labela was drawn to the shul of the Chosa of Lublin, who we met at the beginning of class, the seer of Lublin. He became friendly with the Chosa's son, Rav Yisrael. And now I'm merging the stories. I mentioned that the Kutzker Rebbe had his eyes on Rav Labela. 
He saw his potential. He said, that's the kind of young man who belongs in my circle. And when Lebele got the invitation, he was in a quandary. What do you do? He'd signed the Tznayim at his wedding, and he'd be betraying his, <coughs> his whole family legacy, his father, his grandfather. <coughs> but he was invited to join what was called the Kibbutz. Kibbutz, not to be confused with the Kibbutz movement, although it's the same root. Kibbutz meant the kolel. Um, it means a ga- literally means a gathering. The idea of the Kibbutz back in these days was that young men would effectively go to learn and they'd leave their wives and their children, they'd leave them for more or less five, three to five years at a stretch to go immerse themselves in Torah. And you receive an invitation from the Kutzker Rebbe, that's, that's, that's an offer it's very hard to say no to. And his friend, Rabbi Israel, the son of the Chose, encouraged him to go. And finally, Rav Levala accepted. And he went to Kutsk. His wife complained to the father, and the father said, deals off, he withheld all financial support. They remained married, but uh, there was no more money coming in, and Rav Lebele went anyway. To his credit, to his intellectual honesty. He shows up in Kutsk, and of course he's there with his fur coat and trunks filled with satin suits and white shirts and all kinds of possessions that he grew up with. And when he arrives in Kutsk, and they expect him, and they know he's coming, the first thing that the Kutzker had his students do was they uh, take him to a room, they take away his possessions, they strip him to his undergarments, and they give him the following options. They say, if you want to go, you go now. We give you your, we give you your possessions back. If you want to stay, no fur coats. Kutsk is tatters and rags. That's the way we like things here. He stayed, and he stayed on their terms. And that takes, uh, that, takes, uh, 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 that takes a certain godless, a certain greatness of spirit for somebody who's, who's uh, born to the manor and, and manages to uh, adjust his standard of living. And what is the standard of living? What is life like in Kutsk? So the average day learning is about 18, 19 hours in the base medrash. They sleep on the floor. They ate when there was food, and sometimes there wasn't food, so they didn't eat. Most of the time that was the case. Um, and the atmosphere was to spend the day searching for MS in the base medrash. And they didn't compromise. And when they weren't satisfied, they didn't go home with a, with a, with a, with a, with a klutz kind of a, a pshat. When Rabbi, Kiva, when Rabbi Labela went to Kutsk, legend has it that his father of Shlomo, back in Warsaw, Warsaw sat shiva for his wayward son. And the legend holds that Rav Lebula heard this and asked, asked the Kutzker Rebbe a shayla. He said, if, um, according to the laws of Kibbut Av, do I have an obligation to visit him and be Menachem Avel? Half of you are listening. Whether he had to, um, why, why would he go up to honor, to, to, to comfort his father's brief father's father sitting shiva for him? Because he became a chassid. Just think about the implications here. I get it now. Gotcha. Um, eventually, Rebbe Label grew, and indeed, like his, like his early uh, signs indicated, uh, he became a, a, an immense Talmud Chacham. He actually eventually became um, the leader of the fifth generation of chassidim. And he's unusual. He doesn't really fit any uh, previous mold. As we've seen it, he doesn't represent one brand of Hasidus. 
many, many different Hasidic groups defer to him. They recognize his greatness in the Torah, his, his Tzidkus. And he was this kind of interesting figure. He was everybody's rabbi. Even Misnagdim recognized him. I and mean, it helped to have the pedigree of Rav Akiva Eger, of Shlomo Eger's uh, you know, descendant. Um, and everybody saw this Chidushim. He actually died on the same day that the Kutzker died, 29 years later. Um, one last thought in Rav Lebala. He asked, there's a Gemara that says at the end of days, the Tzaddikim will dance in a circle around the Ibisher, around the Kaddish Baruch Hu. And Rav Lebala asks the question, why a circle? What's the image meant to convey that we're dancing in a circle around the Kaddish Baruch Hu? And he explains it as follows. He says, each Tzaddi will see, will have their relationship and perceive a Kaddish Baruch Hu from a separate angle. Each one, therefore, will have his own unique approach, and they'll bring their approach to celebrating Hashem, and in the end, they'll be distinguished by unifying and joyously dancing in a circle around the Kaddish Baruch Hu, around the Kaddish Baruch Hu's Torah. And interesting, in a sense, he was a similar kind of a unifying presence as uh, so much of an otherwise divided Jewish nation would rally around him up to a certain degree, he wasn't necessarily the Gadol Hador, but he certainly was, a, was a, a harmonizing figure. I'm changing gears. I'm introducing a few different personalities of a totally different nature. Uh, that was the, the revolution with the revolution, and we'll pick up that thread. We'll see where Hasidish will go into the late 19th and 20th century at a future point. Um, these are the times of some unusual figures who, I don't mention all of them, but I'll mention a few. You should know the names of, for example, of Rabbi Israel Lifshitz, who's referred to, as many are referred to by their safer. He wrote the Tiferes Israel. Does that mean anything to anybody? The Yachinu Boaz? Okay, it's, the shul is usually named for this gadol. The Tiferes Israel um, wrote a perush on Mishnah. And um, on the classic page of Mishnah, of the commentary, you have whom do, who, do we, who do we remember? Who's, who's in the Rashi slot? The Bartanora, or the Rav, Rav Vadimi Bartanora. In the Tosfos slot, Tosfos Yantif, your ancestor. Um, and then you have the Yachinu Voaz, because it's divided into two different parts, which together are referred to as Tiferes Yisrael. Um, it, uh, in the Tiferes Yisrael are a lot of very quotable, important points, including the earliest authoritative illustration of the base of Mikdash and its layout. Up until that point, at least Gedolim didn't draw what was described in Meseches Midos. So if you ever want to really visualize what the base of Mikdash was, you go back, let's say, earliest to the Tiferes Yisrael. There have been others subsequently that have come out. And some issues, certainly, like in any such thing, it, since you can't learn to tie your shoelaces from a book, it, it's a major challenge to uh, leap from the black-on-white text to uh, try to understand what that looked like. But he does, he does that with a master stroke. He, um, he was known for fasting for three days in a row. Uh, he studied en uh, constantly. Um, he also left an unusual uh, tzva'ah, uh, what we call an ethical will, I guess, which was full of very high levels of, of, of mitos and standards and expectations. Um, another great figure who's associated with Musser is Rav Eliezer Papo, the only figure I'm going to mention from Bulgaria in this class. He came from um, Celestria, Bulgaria. He was a Rav there. 
Um, you might have heard of him by his book, The Peleyoets. If you don't know it, it's, a, it's, it's, it's an understandable classic of Musser. What he does is he breaks down Midos by category. And he gives with tremendous uh, finesse, he gives, he gives a, a, a whole explanation from Chazal with lots of practical illustrations of how the bad Midos come up in a person's life. He's very practically oriented, daily situations, relationships. He also has a lot on Dveikas and how you can implement it in your life, how you can become close to Kodesh Baruch Hu in a regular, on a regular basis. The other figure I need to spend a little more time on uh, is an exciting figure, very different. He's not, a, not, not the typical Tamil Chacham that I talk about, but he was famous for other reasons. His name is Sir Moses Montefiore, who uh, lived 101 distinguished years from 1784 to 1885. Sir Montefiore, it's kind of hard to measure his impact in today's standards. He's really one of these figures that remains unparalleled at any time in history. There's no one quite like him as you're about to hear. How about the Baron Rothschild? Not the same, you'll hear. The Baron is the Baron, no question. And okay, so if you want rich 19th century Jews, check, check. They were related by marriage too, right? Not, not surprisingly. But the comparisons will start to end as you'll hear. The, uh, you have to imagine, as we described it yesterday, 19th century European Jewry, um, which we're going to dwell on. I'm giving, uh, you're utterly forgiven if you don't want to attend tomorrow during a fast day, although you're probably not doing anything better with your time. After Mincha, I'm going to continue our saga because um, our time is limited and I'm, not, I, I'm behind in what I'd like to accomplish this year. So tomorrow we get to the Musser movement, uh, which is absolutely imperative to understand. And if you don't want to come, you'll get the tape, you'll get the recorded version, but I encourage you to be here. Um, these are the times, though, during this period, the Muslim period, the time of the 19th century persecution, the Cantonist decrees that the Jews, 99.999% of them are poor, downtrodden, constant oppression. And the image of this, uh, one of the wealthiest men, let alone Jews, in the world, who's a kind figure, who's a Baal Chesed, who cares about Klal Yisrael, who is Shomer Torah and Mitzvos, when such a thing was almost unthinkable for a person of means to also keep the Torah and mitzvos. He, he was a source of, of, of such inspiration. People talked about Montefiore. He was a daily fixture of their existence. His generosity was so grand. And most wealthy Jews didn't stay from, and he somehow did. Um, there's actually a legend, how did he do it? His secret, and this is told about a couple different personalities, but I've heard it, I've heard it from about Montefiore, that every day he would lay down in his own aron, his coffin, uh, and he said, if you remember where we're going, it's pretty easy to keep perspective about you and let all those um, obsequious, you know, the people flattering you from all around you, you know, oh, you're so wonderful, you easily keep them in perspective when you realize the earth is a great level leveler, that uh, we're all, we all go there together and we can't take our money with us. His story briefly, I'm not going to dwell on his story, I'm going to go more into his accomplishments, but he was born in Livorno, same place where the Chida was buried in Italy. Um, his family moved to London later, he's part of Italian, Sephardi uh, um, family background. Um, he will uh, join what was called a counting house, uh, it's a kind of an institution, kind of a banking institution back in the day, we don't have anything quite like it today. Uh, he became a city licensed broker eventually, he's very talented. Um, he married well. His wife's sister, after he married, after he was married, married 
Nathan Rothschild. Remember the story of the Rothschilds? Mayor Amschel Rothschild back in Germany sent his sons to four major cities and became the first international uh, banking family. Nathan was the one who went to London, right? Uh, uh, James went to Paris. That was the Baron's father. So Nathan um, took on Rothschild, took on Montefiore initially as a stockbroker and later as a partner. And as a partner, their business absolutely uh, skyrocketed, and um, they all became among the wealthiest people in the world. He was, while he was in England, during this period, while he was still a professional, um, in his younger years, he played a decisive role fighting reform. He didn't want them to have a major influence. Remember, the English Jewish community is still relatively young. It only came about after, remember the, uh, remember, uh, remember the whole story of, um, of Oliver Cromwell and the Jews being allowed theoretically to come back that didn't take hold until the 1700s. So now in the 1800s, there is a fledgling Jewish community and reform now tries to get an, an in. Um, and there is, in, on, on, the British, on the British Isles till today, there is a small, they, call, they don't call it reform, they call it progressive Judaism, but not nearly uh, to the degree of influence as found, let's say, in places like the United States, <coughs> where the reform really take off. Part of that certainly was due to the efforts of Sir Montefiore, who was a traditional Jew all the way through. Um, he retired uh, at the old age of 40 in 1824. But given the fact that he lived another 61 years, what do you do for the rest of your life? Well, you certainly don't need money. Um, what's that? For sure, but he retired at 40 and he uses the remaining years of his, the over half of his life to, um, to use his time and his considerable fortune to helping Jews. Um, in um, 1837, he would be knighted by Queen Victoria, and he became Sir uh, Moses Montefiore, elected sheriff, sheriff of London. Sheriff was a term like a duke. Today, one, one has images of the Wild West, I guess, when you hear the term, but that, that meant something different in London. Um, I mentioned briefly when we talked about reform, the Damascus blood libel, but let's tell the story now. Because Montefiore is central in the whole discussion. <clears throat> In 1840, um, well, let's go back. Muslims, for the record, yes, oppressed Jews. Nowhere near the dimension of the Christian world. But it's not like, remember, remember we were Dima, and we paid a tax, and they were the ones who initiated the special garb that the Jews wore. But okay, there was, there was, uh, it wasn't to the same degree, it wasn't the Inquisition. It was... Um, and the Muslims never had such a thing as a libel. What was the, remember the old blood libel we found that originally when the Jews were still in England? What were the old blood libels? The Jews take the blood, murder Christians, and then later Christian children to make their matzah. Uh, that was usually the classic blood libel. They varied, they had different stories sometimes. Um, that was a Christian canard. Um, and the Muslims never had it until now. But really they got it from the Christians. Um, here of the French consul in Damascus, in the part of the Ottoman Empire at the time, um, referred to the disappearance of a certain Capuchin monk and blamed the convenient scapegoat of history, the Jews, and, the, um, and now for the first time one finds the libel being used not only by, the, by this monk, but by the Muslims themselves who, um, 
I mean, it's a, her- it's a terrible, uh, terrible situation. They arrest, they arrest um, the leaders of the Jewish community in Damascus. Can you imagine? Just imagine the most prominent members of the community, and they were all thrown in jail. Um, Thirteen total. Thirteen distinguished Talmud Chachamim and, and Gvirim, uh, rich men, all, all thrown into prison. And um, the world heard about it, and whereas previously, I mean, now again, there's such a thing in the world with the printing press and industrially, the fledgling industrial revolution, now there's such a thing as um, word getting out relatively quickly. But even when word got out and people knew about oppression of Jews in foreign land, lands, we cared about it, we davened for them, Achinu Kol Beis Yisrael, Hanetsuni Bitzara, those Jews who were brought up, we davened to Gadosh Baruch but the idea of political activism on behalf of other Jews, it was unheard of, it was unprecedented. And suddenly you had, you had, you had the figure of Sir Moses Montefiore, who rubbed elbows with the, with the political elite of his times, and everybody, everybody um, respected him, that um, he, such a celebrated figure could actually go to bat, uh, go, to go to, to to really defend the Jews. Uh, now the episode was shocking. Many of the modern assimilating Jews, the enlightened Jews, thought that the blood libel was a thing of the past. This is the new world, a new era. They're not going to use the blood libel. So it's shocking enough for Montefiore to uh, raise funds and and support not only from Jews from non-Jews. He personally goes and visits the Sultan in Turkey. Turkey, of course, is the center. It's part of the Ottoman Empire. Um, and he intercedes on behalf of the, of the Syrian Jews so that in the end, only three were murdered under torture. And it was all of this is unfolding simultaneously. So the arrest took place and it took time to galvanize support. But by the time he manages to intercede with the Sultan, only three have died. Uh, one had converted to Islam under pressure. Uh, and the others were free. Um, many of the others w- were, were freed then. Many of them others were maimed and permanently disabled. They burned a safer Tyra. A shul was destroyed. But nine out of the 13 ultimately were liberated. This is probably the most celebrated uh, cause that's associated with Montefiore. Remember the reaction? We said this yesterday, but not all of you were here. What was the reaction of this new movement that they called themselves Reform? Shah, quiet. You're embarrassing us. Any distinction of Jews, we, we can't countenance. And they had nothing to do with the plan to save uh, the Jews in Damascus. But Montefiore was made of a different, uh, he was of a different breed. Um, and that was, that was probably his most celebrated cause, but I'm going to cite a few others of many, many examples. In 1858, Montefiore personally traveled to Rome to free a single Jewish uh, young man who had been kidnapped by the church. In 1846, and then later in 1872, he traveled to Russia on a similar mission. 1864, he went to Morocco. 1867, to Romania. And if you, you know, if you're if you're trying to conjure in your imagination, at least, you know, the geographical travels of Montefiore, there was not a corner of the world that Montefiore was not uh, was was not willing to go and help. Um, now, Jews had never had anybody who was an active state statesman. Of, of international prestige who would protect them, who would look out for their interests. And he became a folk hero. And indeed, in 1884, as he celebrated his 100th birthday, Jews celebrated it all around the world. There's a, there was a later, not that much later, a secular song that they sing about in Israel. It's in Hebrew, uh, cele- celebrating the grandeur of Montefiore. It's, it's worth hearing once, at least, if you understand the Hebrew. Um, 
Oh, it's a great song. What's the name of it? It's Hassar, I think. The, the, the sir, the minister. Something grand, something regal to, to reflect Montefiore. Um, the last comment I want to make about Montefiore, there's much more we could say, but I'm, I'm going I'm to keep it to this, um, was his special connection with Eretz Israel. He first visited um, just around the time that he retired in the year 1827, a few years after his retirement. Um, and when he came for the first time, he was moved profoundly and he was touched enough to want to make, a, he was religious and traditional and he became super religious and super traditional. Eretz Israel would have that impact on people. It's not for uh, nothing that the idea of coming to yeshiva for a year has taken off and, and has been recognized as, and not just yeshiva, but Israel programs in general, why birthright has come into being for the secular Jews, because the time in Eretz Israel connects people with their folk, with their, with, their, with, their, with their home, with their life, with their family, uh, with the Kaddish Baruch Hu, and that certainly impacted Montefiore. Um, he actually traveled a total of seven times to Eretz Yisrael. He began traveling from the first trip with his own personal shochet, so that the food would be impeccably kosher. He was responsible for a number of projects all over Eretz Yisrael. Some of them will be familiar to you, including the first building over Kever, Rachel, that we visited a couple weeks ago. The old picture that you have in that quaint, that there's one classic picture that you see most circulated of Kever Ruffel before the new monstrosity. The military apparatus was built, maybe necessarily around Kever Ruffel to protect Jews, but the old time simple square building with a dome, you ever see that rendition? That was the Montefiore building. Uh, he builds the first issue, the first Jewish settlement outside the Jewish, outside the old city. Uh, for Jews, the old city at the time had become unlivable. Uh, the sanitation, there was no sanitation, there was, there was disease, um, and he wanted to create possibilities, not just for Jews to live, but also for their livelihood. Anybody know the name of the community? Uh, no, Yemim Moshe was named for him later, but the original one is Mishkenot Ananim, and he established there the windmill as a source of livelihood, not just trying to set up a community, but that Jews could actually make a, make a parnasa. The windmill, of course, was a new, the cutting edge of technology was a way of crushing, crushing um, using the wind's natural power to crush uh, grind wheat. Um, the story, the legend about the windmill is the Arabs saw it as a, as a sign of the times and were spooked by it. They didn't know what it represented and they hired one of their own to go and curse the windmill. And indeed, within a couple of weeks, the windmill on its own somehow stopped working and the Jews were spooked and it's never been used. It's, it's, a, land, it's a landmark. Uh, but just that, a place of tourist interest. <coughs> he, um, he also, many would say, and we're going to talk about the story of the Kosel in the modern era too, because the Kosel is worthy of its own story, so there's a little uh, separate piece I have on that. But, um, but he would build, many feel he built the upper concourses of stones. If you can picture the Western Wall as we have it today, you can clearly <laughs> recognize that there are several different layers of stone. And it may be that not, maybe, maybe not the uppermost, but the second uppermost concourse were, were uh, commissioned and paid for by, by Montefiore. He'll play a role also in, in other areas of the coastal. He also donates large sums of money promoting industry and education and health. I should correct myself, Mishkan Hashanim was technically founded, I mentioned this before, by Turo, by the Turo family, but he was really the mover and shaker. 
I'm going to round that today with, with several other personalities and phenomenon of the area that they each are their own short blurb, and maybe I'm not doing any of them justice, but they certainly deserve to be mentioned, and they all paint a picture. Um, the next figure, anybody hear of Rav Yosef Zundel of Salam? He's not that well known, and he should be. He's considered the source of inspiration for the Muslim movement, which we're going to talk about tomorrow. That's a big deal. You'd like that on your personal resume in Olam Haba? Oh, nothing. I just, you know, started the Muslim movement. The, um, he was considered, he, he was a direct disciple of Rav Chaim of Lozhen, who we already met, was a disciple of the Vilna Gaon, and was very much, you can draw a line between these personalities. They were shooting for a very high standard and idealism, a return to Eretz Yisrael, the Mashiach, learning Torah, simple pshat, uh, none of the fancy peel pool, remember all of these ideas. And Rav Chaim actually posited that there would be the ideal personality called the Lamdan Chassid. Not to be confused with the Hasidic movement, but rather somebody who was deeply engrossed in Talmudic learning and by merit of his learning became a Chassid, meaning um, utterly righteous in the classic sense of the term Chassid. Um, he actually didn't leave us many writings. That's one of the reasons why his name is less known. Um, but his personality, listen to a little bit about his personality. Uh, personally, he never used Torah to make a parnasa. He somehow eked living that much. He was very poor all of his life, but he eked living on the side. Uh, he refused tzedakah, take money, just live simply. You know, when, when it came, came down to it, he preferred to just live more simply. He uh, <coughs> tried to distinct, disguise himself as a simple man in dress and behavior, and sometimes he got away with it. Um, he emphasized a person bittal <coughs> on total negation of the self, total negation of this world and all of its pleasures. Um, he was careful, punctilious in all mitzvahs, very much like Rav Chaim and very much like the Vilnagon. Um, and there were several, including several sections of the Talmud that almost nobody was careful with, but Rav Yosef Zundel was Mekayim. Uh, one example was when he, he was seen walking through gardens and fields and as he walked, he pressed his finger to his nose. Because the Gemara says, on Brachos, one who fears Ayin Hara, let him grab, oh, I did it wrong, let him grab his left nostril. And the idea was to prevent, was to, was to prevent damage from the Ayin Hara, the evil eye. Uh, he actually, um, he would move to Eretz Yisrael. His son-in-law, Rav Shmuel Salant, also moves after him. And um, when he comes to Jerusalem, they beg him to be the Rav, and he declines, and they beg him more, and sometimes he had to rise to the situation, and he accepted the position on condition that he would not draw a salary, and the minute somebody else that he felt was he could decide was more worthy would arrive, he would leave the job, and indeed his son-in-law came soon after, and his son-in-law of Shmuel Salant became the primary Rav in Yerushalayim for a good over half a century, and Rav Yosef Zundel um, simply moves to the background and becomes a tzaddik. They're actually all buried in the same little area in Harazesim, an area that I find very inspiring to guide, as, as I can remember their, their, their personal examples. Um, as I said, he would be the example, the model for the Musar movement that would be uh, uh, founded by his disciple Rabbi Yisrael, also of Salant. Uh, all, they all, all these figures came from the little, little uh, town of Salant. 
since we're hovering around the early to mid uh, 19th, 19th century, um, there's a new book that's, that's initially set in this time that all of you know well, very well, I think almost all of you, if not all of you, um, learned this particular version of the manuscript called the, what are you thinking? Yes. Vilna Shas. The Vilna Shas, which is the newest, the newest iteration of the Talmud. It was set originally in 1835. And can you imagine? It was controversial. I mean, today it's the only Shas that's acceptable. But in its day, it represented a bit of a break from the past. And remember, everything new is suspicious in these, in these tumultuous years. Um, especially during the Enlightenment and Hasidus and everything else. Um, the Vilna Shas is associated with the widow Ram, her full name was Devorah Ram and her brothers, uh, who worked together to complete the publication. Eventually, the last, the final version was came out in 1886. It would represent the entire Shas Bavli. That would be 5,894 Dapim. That'll be on the test at the end of the class. No, just kidding. Uh, 37 volumes in full. Um, that's the definitive shas that's learned today anywhere the Talmud's learned. And that's a pride of... People sometimes think the Vilna shas is much earlier. It's actually not that old. Rav Yosef Babad wrote a book called the Minchas Chinuch. Anybody here learn, anybody learn with Rav Rosen, the Sefer Chinuch? You learn the Minchas Chinuch then, the commentary on the side? Maybe not. I don't think he learns Minchas Chinuch. The standard version of the Sefer Chinuch, not the one that you're learning, actually comes with one commentary. It's Rav Baba. It's Rav Yosef Baba. Um, and it's, it's huge, as I'll try to convey to you now. His pedigree, he learned with the Sanzer Rebbe, meaning his, he was part of Hasidic, the Hasidic world. The Sanzer Rebbe is Rav Chaim Halberstam. Um, the Minchas Chinuch, you know, what the, remember, remember what the Sefer Chinuch is? Sefer Chinuch is this unintended classic that was a commentary on the 613 mitzvahs, <laughs> where he gives you all the necessary background, the Korbalacha and the general hashkafas behind each mitzvah. The Minchas Chinuch is an invaluable companion text where he, he based on immense lumdish, he was a Gaon, he was a Talmud Chacham, he knew Shas and Poskim. He gave you all of the questions that you would naturally ask as you learn about the basis of the mitzvah. Well, what happens if the widow then gets married to the mamzer, and then you know all the various uh, fallout ramifications? And you can see the major sugyas in the Gemara that discuss these issues. He brought you the post game, gave you the general, uh, the ma major protagonists of the different views. Um, it became a staple, even though he was Hasidish by pedigree. It became a staple in, among other places, brisker yeshivas, brisk, which we'll, we'll meet soon enough, uh, which is very much in the Misnagdish world. Um, in fact, uh, I have this, I was in Rav uh, Bronspiegel's shir at YU, and um, he recalls the um, later, the last years of Rav Soloveitchik from YU as being uns very, very sad. The, the, the Rav um, had Alzheimer's and did not recognize people. Um, and Rav Bronspiegel was a very close student, and he was saddened when he went in. I think it was one of the la last visits, and the Rav no longer rep rep recognized him. And, um, but he saw... Even though he, he suffered from immense demen he had dementia, um, he saw something unusual that Rav Soloveitchik's lips were moving. And um, Rav Bronspiegel got closer and he heard very distinctly Rav Soloveitchik reciting from memory sections of the Minchas Chinuch. 
So I think that's certainly something that just gives you the, the sense of the primacy of the Minchas Chinuch as a book of Lamdanim of, of, of great Torah scholarship. Uh, in a, in a, almost like in a totally different genre of works. Um, a contemporary of Rav Yosef Babad was Rav Shlomo Gansfried, who produces uh, a totally different classic called the Kitzer Shulchan Aruch. Another book that I imagine how many of you are learning that or exposed to that this year? Okay, good, you should be. Um, he was from the Ukraine, he moved to Hungary. Um, much of the Kitzer is based on uh, Hungarian minhag. It's one of the reasons why you have to be careful about paskening directly, especially something you're not sure about in there, because unless you happen to be a 19th century Hungarian Jew, I don't think anybody here fits that bill of goods. Uh, so then you, you know, you might not necessarily paskin from it, but it would be, it was immensely popular. And it's the latest iteration of what many Gidoli have been doing over the generations of seeing, look at my generation, they are, they are embarrassingly ignorant, they don't know how to keep Torah. And I have to come up with our generation's work that will translate, you know, dilute in a sense, the great works of, of, of the past and put it in terms that the modern ignoramus can somehow uh, grab onto. And indeed, it would be reprinted um, in Hebrew and Yiddish and then many, many other languages. Um, if you read the Kitzer, things to make note of, there is a tendency, he's aware of it inside, Tor Chumrah. And it was when in doubt, he's Machmir, where the Havach is not always Machmir like he is. Um, by, depending on who you, who you hold by. Um, he does say what he feels is motor. He'll tell you that without ambiguity. Um, and that's sometimes a distortion too, because sometimes what's motor is not clearly motor, but you get the impression from the Kitzer that it is. Um, his basis explains to you the way he gets to a Pesach Halacha is he takes three authorities. The Nesivos, who we met with Yaakov of Lisa, uh, the Shulchan Aruch Harav, who's the author of that? Who wrote the Shulchan Aruch Harav? The Balatanya, Roshner Zalman, interesting, interesting collection of authorities, and the Chaye Adam. Remember who, who got the Haskama from Rav Chaim Velozhin? <coughs> One more personality for today. Uh, his name is Rav Meir Leibush Ben Yechiel Michal Weiser. And you don't have to remember that. Malbim, Malbim will suffice. Who's learning the Malbim on uh, Megillus Esther? Oh yeah, oh, every year. That's that's if not the most popular, at least one of them. Somebody out there is learning the Malbim. It's one of the modern classics. A lot of people look, look as you leave the class today. Look on the on the top of the uh, of the desks in the base benches. You will see the Malbim. It, I don't even know that. I'm just guessing. Fine. Okay. Oh, fine, fine. Everybody, everybody wants it right now. So he too came from Ukraine originally. He was in Poland. He moved around a lot. Uh, he had a life of immense hardship. Um, when he was robbed, for example, in um, Bucharest, he got flack from the Maskilim. The enlightened Jews went after the rabbis. I've mentioned that. Yesterday they came up a lot, and the Malbim was one of their targets, and um, to the point that they got him thrown into jail. Can you imagine the holy Malbim, whose Perushim we learn, uh, you know, his modern classics, so they got him imprisoned on a trumped up charge. Uh, Montefiore paid the bail. Typical, right? And um, but Montefiore said, "You gotta leave town. I'm only gonna pay you bail. You gotta leave. I can't. You know, we can't keep this as a cycle. That they're gonna get you again, and throw you in jail again." And he leaves town, and he serves ultimately in 14 different communities. That's how tumultuous life was as a rabbi in these days. Um, he was offered the chief rabbinate of none other than New York City, which he turned out, turned down, and few. 
wait till, you, wait till you hear the story, if you don't know it already, of the first and last chief rabbi that America would ever know. Wait, what? And that was supposed to Maldim very, Siata uh, Dishmaya did not take. No, it was not. He was not the chief rabbi. Uh, we'll talk about that. We'll get that when we talk about it. We're going to focus on America too. That's going to obviously take up a certain amount of our attention. Um, yeah. He was actually on the way to his 15th community when he suddenly died. Yeah, that was that was how, how uh, what, what a, what a va- vagabond in a sense he was in his life. I mean, he, he tried, he worked, he was mashpia, but he he wrote a lot. And despite his hardships of life, he managed to open up the Tanakh to the world with a perush that's as accessible as it is long. Uh, I mentioned to you that the uh, his perush on Eov is 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 uh, runs. Uh, Make a, if, depending on how it's published, it can run into volumes. It's massive, and it's like that in, in much of much of Shas. But um, it, it feels to a modern sensibility. He asks questions, let's say, that the modern mind asks, and it's deep and insightful. I'll give you a little taste of it, and we'll call it a day. This is a, this is one of those bits of Torah that I feel I carry around with me, and I'm always using. And I think I probably mentioned in the marriage class. He describes Shira Shirim as a parable with three major players. Anybody learn Shir Shirim here? We're about to say it on, on Cholomoid, uh, Shabbos Cholomoid for Pesach. Who are the three major protagonists in, in, in Shir Shirim? Hashem? No. Oh, like as it's presented oh, in the book itself. Woman. Uh, man or woman? Uh, more specifically, two shepherds. A female yeah. shepherd and a male shepherd and a king. And uh, even though much of it is simply the man singing to the woman and the woman singing to the man, but the layout of it is of what's going on there, the drama there, is the king kidnaps the girl and keeps her imprisoned in his courtyard. And the main, the, 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 the meat of, this, of, the, of the safer is the girl pines for the shepherd boy in the field and she sings to him. And the boy pines for, his, for the lost girl. And they go back and forth. So we're used to the pshat, as Chazal give us, that the <coughs> they represent the, the, the two protagon, the two main protagonists, not the king, represents Israel, and right? What's called Knesset Israel and 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 the Kodesh Baruch Hu. It's the Jews and the Kodesh Baruch Hu. So the Malbim does a more specific um, alternate view of that. It's not in contrast with that, but it, it, it it's much more specific. He actually he says that the girl represents on a certain level the neshama. The king represents the goof, the body, and the boy represents a Kaddish Baruch. And that that's life. Shir Shirim is a parable of life that, as long, insofar as we're in this world, our, our neshama is contained or imprisoned within the body, all the neshama genuinely wishes to have is a reunion with the Kaddish Baruch, with its maker. And for a Kaddish Baruch Hu's part, he, he genuinely craves a reunion with the neshama, and that's the beautiful poetry that, that, that describes much of Shir Shirim. Um, it, it is the way to understand Jewish love as well, the Jewish view on love as well, because um, people get caught up in a lot of the modern romance and you and me and me and you, but we understand when a Jewish couple comes together, really they are helping one another get closer to their truest love, and that is Kaddish Baruch Hu. And, um, and then you read Shir Shirim with that in mind, uh, it totally opens up new worlds as the Malbim does uh, throughout all of the Tanakh. Uh, tomorrow we're going to Germany first briefly, and then we're going to uh, Germany and talk about the neo-orthodoxy of the Aruch Lener and Rav Shimshon Rafael Hirsch, and then we're going to do the Muslim movement.